We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 28. This is God's Word. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Uh, Listen reverently to it as I read it to you. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we thank you for being the God that you are. We thank you that you are um, not a God who is selfish. Uh, indeed, you are the very opposite. You are the, the great and glorious giver. You have given of yourself exhaustively to us, your people, in the person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you continue to give to us what we need, not only physically, for our physical sustenance, but even more importantly, you give what we need for our spiritual sustenance and growth in grace. And the preeminent source of that um, growth is the preached word, as your scriptures make clear. We ask that you would uh, give to us abundantly and generously once again through the preached word this morning. Would you, Jesus, please preach to us Would you um, remind us of things we already know, perhaps, but need to be reminded of, and teach us things, Lord, that perhaps we did not know about you, about uh, ourselves, and about how you would have us live uh, in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, there are different types of Fear. Fear comes in different different types. I'll give you an example. So there is a type of fear that 
is you should have when your mom or your dad, um, in a stern tone of voice, tell you you need to do something that perhaps you weren't very willing to do, and maybe there was a little attitude that you shouldn't have had, uh, and your parents say, you will do this now. And the imply, implication is that you will get, you'll be in trouble. You'll get spanked or something else will happen that you won't like if you don't do this now. There's an appropriate time to be fearful. But it's fear of someone who loves you, uh, in the case of your parents uh, at that moment. But there's another type of fear that you should have, and it's a very different type of fear, and that's the type of fear you should have of uh, a bad man who is trying to break into your house, a burglar, say, or uh, a violent man who has shown that he's violent and uh, he's coming toward you. And you should be terrified, actually, of a guy like that. Uh, You should run from somebody like that. That's a whole different type of fear than the fear that you should have of your parents and of being disciplined by your mom or your dad who love you. This passage that we're looking at here, among other things, um, deals with the subject of fear um, and different types of fear that different types of people should have for God. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, in the remainder of our time here together. The Sabbath, uh, Saturday of um, the Passion Week, um, has come and it has gone. Mark uh, 16 makes it clear that that's the case, 16 verse 1. It's now the crack of dawn on Sunday morning, Resurrection Day. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, we learn that from uh, chapter 27, Salome, we learn this from Mark's account, Joanna, we learn this from Luke's account, and perhaps a couple of other women as well. So there's quite a quite a collection, uh, looks like uh, perhaps as many as half a dozen women, are making their way to Jesus' burial place at the crack of dawn Sunday morning. Uh, and although it is still dark when the women start out from the tomb, from their respective houses, the sun has arisen by the time they arrive. It's very low in the horizon, but it has risen and thus uh, dawn. Now, while Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, uh, some days earlier had wound a linen cloth coated with myrrh and aloes around Jesus' body when they placed it in the tomb um, and covered it, they had not anointed Jesus' body. Um, and anointing was something that was commonly done uh, back in the day, to sh- back in that day, to slow a body's decomposition. Now, I'm not sure what the women were thinking, but they were coming to anoint the body. I don't know if they realized that the uh, the, uh, stu- the stone that was in front of that thing was extremely large, and they might not get a- be able to move it out of the way because it was so large. But uh, I suspect that was the case, that they actually didn't realize that the tomb was going to be inaccessible um, unless they had lots of help removing that stone. But at any rate, they go to anoint, uh, are coming to the place of Jesus' burial to anoint his body. 
Um, there are two major points that uh, I want to bring to your attention from this passage. The first is this. We're going to see that the pagan guards were right to be terrified of God on this occasion. The pagan guards were right to be terrified of God on this occasion. But we're going to also see that the Christian women had no need to be terrified of God on this occasion. First, the pagan guards, they were right to be terrified of God on this occasion. Well, really of God's angel, but that represented the power of God himself and the person of God himself. They had a right to be terrified because of the awesome display of divine power that they witnessed on this occasion. Uh, That power, that divine power was displayed in the shaking of the ground, the violent shaking of the ground that took place, as an angel of the Lord descended and appeared, this blindingly radiant heavenly visitor appeared right there in front of the guards <coughs> in order to remove the tomb, the stone from that, that heavy stone from the tomb and from its entrance so that Jesus could come out. And they witnessed this. They felt the ground shaking under them as this blindingly glorious heavenly figure descends and stands there in front of them. God's power is evident. They knew this was a supernatural thing that they were experiencing and that the shaking of the earth was supernatural because of the heavenly visitation. God's great power was also displayed to them as his angel single-handedly undoubtedly removed that stone in all likelihood, with a mere flick of the wrist. I suspect, I'm guessing there, it doesn't say that in the text. But after all, this is an angel. It's just, you know, he does does that and the stone moves. Uh, so I suspect it was uh, very, uh, it was an impressive display for those that were still conscious at that point and were able to witness it before passing out or whatever it is they did. Before I go on to, uh, so, so, so the, the guards saw this. This was God on display, if you will, uh, through the actions of his, uh, heavenly messenger. Uh, and they had every right at this point to be terrified, simply be, because of the supernatural thing that they were experiencing and feeling, uh, there, uh, that morning, uh, before dark, uh, before dawn, dawn rather. Now, before I go on to the second reason why they had every right to be terrified, I want to make a few uh, points about the theological significance of God's displays of power, uh, including the the uh, the uh, the uh, the the resurrection of Jesus, the uh, mighty earthquake that appropriately accompanied that resurrection, and accompanied the descent of the angel and the removal of the massive stone from the tomb's entrance. First of all, this display of divine power was the father, well, the triune gods, way of, in effect, laughing in the face of those wicked men who had sought to secure the tomb so that nobody could get in. They weren't worried about anybody getting out. They were worried about people getting in. But this was God's way of laughing. You you know that several places in Scripture, the Bible speaks of God laughs. You remember the most uh, uh, one that always comes to my mind is Psalm 2, that royal uh, messianic psalm when 
after uh, the kings of the earth are opposed to the uh, Lord and his, uh, uh, his anointed, that is to say, his Messiah. Uh, and we read in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is God, not in words, but in display, scoffing at the wicked. How dare you think you can interfere with what I want to do? Unbelievers in this day and age ought to take note of that. Sadly, most of them don't care. But God laughs at their wickedness and their attempts to shake their fist at him. God is going to have his way. He may convert them if if, uh, they are his elect, but most of them undoubtedly will not be converted. And God will have his way when he pours out his wrath upon them. At any rate, these pagan, remember they're pagans, soldiers, had every right to be terrified. And, uh, and God is laughing at, uh, at uh, the wicked men who sent them and at the wicked men themselves standing before the tomb. But there's another theological point that needs to be say, made, or that is being made by God, I should say, through these divine, this divine display. Um, and that is even more important. And that is the triune God by this display, and particularly by the resurrection of the body of Jesus and uh, the reunification of his body with his soul, God is uh, assuring every individual down through the ages who would ever put his trust in Jesus alone to save him uh, from his sins and to reconcile him to God. God is saying to you and to anybody else who is a believer, I have accepted my son's sacrifice rendered uh, as a full and as a complete and acceptable ransom for your sins. I have accepted his sacrifice, um, and I am demonstrating that by raising his body from the dead. By the way, evidence that that is the case, that the, that the resurrection of Jesus was a statement by God to that effect, is uh, evident from Romans 4.25, where it says of Jesus, he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification to to identify and uh, affirm that we are justified if we put our trust in him. We are pardoned of our sins. We are accepted as righteous in in God's sight because of Jesus and what he did and that his sacrifice was made on our behalf and accepted by the Father on our behalf. He was raised for our justification. So that is a statement that is being made to you and to me as believers, we can have we have peace with God, and we can believe that and 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 uh, be assured of that by the resurrection of Christ. God said, "Yes, I accept my Son's sacrifice on your behalf. You are not going to go to hell because He did in your place." Praise the Lord. Secondly, the pagan guards were right to be terrified, not only because of the awesome display of divine power that they witnessed, but the other reason that they had every reason to be terrified was because they were almost certainly, I can think we can safely say certainly, all unredeemed enemies of God as they were standing there guarding that tomb. What do I mean by unredeemed? They hadn't put their wholehearted trust in Jesus the Messiah as their Savior and Lord. 
by, uh, by this I mean the merits of Jesus' atoning and redemptive work had not been applied to these men, as is the case for somebody who is a true believer in Jesus. The, redemptive, the merits of Jesus' death, the, the value of Jesus' death is applied to you and, and is accepted by God on your behalf, as I just said. But it wasn't in the case of these men. They were unredeemed. The merits of Jesus' crosswork had not been applied to them. And this means that God's judicial wrath was still directed against them on account of their sins and their rebellion against their Maker. And the, that is a reason to be terrified of God for them. The fact that they were unredeemed meant it was not only utterly proper for them to be terrified of God and his wrath on this particular occasion. Yes, they needed to be terrified on this particular occasion. But the truth is, they also need to be terrified of God every moment that they breathed. When they, if they were apart from Christ, when they were apart from Christ, unless and until they fled to Jesus alone in faith to placate God's wrath that was otherwise or that was directed against them prior to their conversion. If they were ever converted, we have no idea of knowing. But it was utterly appropriate at any every moment of every day, and this is true of all unbelievers. Every moment of every day, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not trusting in Jesus alone to save you, you should be scared out of your mind that you're not going to have another breath to take and that you're going to descend into the, into the, uh, into the arms of God's wrath where you will remain forevermore suffering indescribable misery and torment. Yes, this is a hellfire and brimstone moment. But it's important because the gospel makes no sense. It's irrelevant if this, what I'm saying about hell, isn't true. And if you're an unbeliever, you should be terrified of God. Because you have rebelled against God. You are a sinner. You have greatly offended and angered God, as have I. As have all people. All sons and daughters of Adam, we've all, we're all conceived and born rebels, shaking our fist at God. And you are that way if you're an unbeliever. And God, who is infinitely righteous and just, must punish all rebellion against him and his law. And he will. It's just a matter of who gets that punishment. Either Jesus gets it for the Christian, or you get it yourself for eternity in hell. But God is a gracious God as well as a just God. And so he is willing to forgive you and pardon you and be reconciled to you if you will flee to the provision that he has provided for sinners to be forgiven, and that is Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God, 100% man, and who is the only hope of being escaping God's wrath and God's judgment. And it's a sure hope, by the way. But you must flee to Jesus, trusting in him alone. so that your God's wrath may be deflected away from you where it is now directed. So are you one of these unforgiven, unredeemed individuals? Is there anybody here like that? Don't raise your hand. Is there anybody listening to me at a distance who's like that? You need to do one thing, and that is you need to flee to Christ to save you. Ask him to 
forgive you for your sins, be repentant of your sins, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and say, save me from the wrath that I deserve. Or words to that effect. And he will. He absolutely will. And you don't have to be, won't have to be terrified of God ever again. But it's only if you flee to Christ. You need Christ. Flee to him. Secondly, while the pagan guards were right to be terrified of God on this occasion and all throughout their lives, as long as they remained pagans, the Christian women had no need to be terrified of God on this or any other occasion. They are told this twice, that they do not need to be terrified. The word fear is used, but that's the point. Once they are told by uh, the angel uh, who appears in verse 5, and the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. And this fear is the uh, fear of paralyzing fear, terror. Do not be afraid, the angel says. And then the Lord Jesus himself, when he appears to them, as they are uh, as they're going back to uh, uh, bring the news to the other disciples, or to the disciples rather, Jesus himself in verse 10 appears to them and says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. You don't need to be. Why were they tempted to be terrified? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Because of what they saw at the tomb and what they didn't see in the tomb. What they saw at the tomb, as I've already said, was the stone rolled away from the tomb's entrance, and then they saw the bodies of semi-conscious or unconscious Roman soldiers strewn about as they walk up. Look at, look at all these bodies. Maybe a few of them were moaning or something. Half-conscious. Wouldn't you be afraid if you saw something like that? And then they were also afraid of what they did not see in the tomb. When they peered in, assuming they did, and they probably almost certainly did, well, they did. I mean, we know they they did. Uh, Based on other accounts, they went into the tomb to see if Jesus was there, and he wasn't. Their Savior is gone. Their, Their Master is gone. So they had cause to be filled with fright. What is going on? And yet they didn't need to be terrified. Why didn't they need to be terrified? Well, the angel said in verse 5, do not be afraid. And a better way to translate that is, don't you be afraid. There's an emphasis in the original here on the you. Don't you be afraid as opposed to somebody else, you see. Unlike the guards who saw me earlier, the angel is saying, don't you, you don't need to be terrified like they did. You don't need to be terrified. Why? Why, why didn't they need to be terrified of what they had seen when they arrived? Why didn't they need to be like the soldiers? Because of what the, again, what the text says, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. You are looking for Jesus. 
His point is, you have no reason to be afraid of God because you are loyal followers of Jesus. You love Jesus. You remained loyal to Jesus and have loved him even though the world has despised and crucified him. You still love him, even when he's dead. His body. And your loyalty and your love for him is evident from the fact that you have come here this morning to care for, to anoint his body. You are looking for Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. Like these guys are. Remember the angels talking to him. So they're, they're standing there. Actually, at this point, they're probably in the tomb. So, the fact that these, these women didn't need to be afraid, and the fact that they did not need to be terrified of God is important. But there's something else that's important that's found in this text. And that is, while they didn't need to be terrified of God, like the pagan guards did, that didn't mean it was improper for them to fear God. Look at verse 8. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to report it to his disciples. They ran quickly. They departed quickly with fear. Jesus had just, or the angel had just said, "Don't be afraid." And yet they departed, and 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 there's nothing that implies that there was anything improper with fear in their in their hearts, and great joy. The joy indicates. What kind of fear? It wasn't terrorizing fear. It wasn't fright of the uh, of the evil sort. It was or of the of the ominous sort. It was it was good fear. You see, it was the right fear. It was proper fear that they had. One of the defining characteristics of a genuine Old Testament and New Testament believer is that he. Fears God. Just a few representative texts should suffice, and you probably even know a few yourself, but I'm going to read uh, them just by way of reminder uh, to most of you. Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, and the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has... And this is right after, by the way, the passage that we read this morning, uh, Deuteronomy 5. So he says right after that, now this is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God, I didn't, I didn't plan that by the way, uh, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Then over in Psalm 34, verse 9, we read this passage. So, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. It's actually commanded there. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Believers, Old Testament believers, Jews. Who are, who are genuinely trusting in the Messiah. 
Fear the Lord. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That's, uh, that's the wrong verse. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. See that? To those who fear him, there is no want. So there we have two Old Testament references uh, and commandments to fear the Lord. And it's also in the New Testament. That we are, by way of example, and by way of explicit commandment, which I'm about to read to you in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, where we read, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Oh, and he adds, honor the king. That's one of the ways you fear God, is by fearing or honoring those whom he has given authority to, his representatives, uh, uh, in the world, uh, even if they're godless. We are to honor the king. But we are to fear God, you see. It's commanded there. And this isn't a contradiction. Because again, we have, as I mentioned to the children, two different types of fear. Fear of God is something that we believers are commanded to do, as I've just indicated. And this fear is, that the biblical writers, both Old and New Testament, are speaking about is not terror, but here's what it is. It is a deep reverence for and respect for God that flows out of a humble and a trusting heart. It's deep reverence and respect, I'd add awe for God, that flows out of a humbled and a continually humble and trusting heart. That's the fear that Believers, Christians, are to have at all times that you are to have for God. The way a child fears his father or his mother, but father is more appropriate because of the analogy with God the Father at this moment. And that's the fear that the women had as they ran from the tomb. They probably had goosebumps. I'm pretty sure they did. But Christian fear, godly fear, is not only to be shown to God the Father, yes, absolutely it is, but it is to be shown to Jesus, God the Son, as well, as evidenced by the women's uh, worship of Jesus when he met up with them in verse 9. Uh, they worship him, we are told, after after he appears to them. Do not be afraid. Uh, sorry, verse 9, before he, Jesus spoke, they, they came up and took hold of his feet. This is after he met them and greeted them. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped. Notice, they were at his feet, worshipping. That posture in addition to one of, of, uh, of demonstrating love and humility before, but that posture also indicates a reverential fear of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, enfleshed. And that's why we are to fear not only the Father, but we are to fear the Son, and likewise, too, by implication, obviously, the other one who's God. And that's God the Holy Spirit. 
We are to fear the three persons of the Godhead, the triune God. It is appropriate. And we are to do this, folks, not just, although particularly when, we are tempted to engage in sinful behavior. Yes, and perhaps a little terror ought to be mixed in with that. The, 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 the fear, genuine, scary fear of God's discipline, fatherly discipline, should we cross the line and choose to engage in some sinful thought or word or behavior or lack of doing something that we should be doing. But, but we are to fear the Lord at all times. We are to live a life of godly fear. That's good fear, again. Reverence, respect, awe that flows from a humbled heart like these women had as they were before Jesus' feet worshiping him. None of us does this perfectly or even close. But you see, this is what is commended to you in this passage. Uh, is not a paralyzing, terrifying fear if you're a believer, but a Fear akin to that which the women had. A fear that is born out of love and trust and humility and seeing God properly for who he is and living that way. Do you need a little help with that? Do you need more fear? I know I do. I'm pretty sure most of you all do too. A little more consistent fear a little more genuine from the heart fear that is um, characteristic of anybody who is truly a Christian. Well, let's pray for that right now, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we're not in the shoes of the, uh, those of us who are believers, we're not in the shoes of the uh, soldiers who were terrified of you, uh, your dis- divine display as your angel came and brilliant uh, uh, light, and the earth shook. We thank you that we don't have to be terrified of you that way. But we thank you, Lord, that even as your children, even though we call you Father and you are our beloved Father and you are a kind and gentle Father, you are also the living God. You are also the creator of all that is. You are the sustainer of all that is. You are the great judge of all men, including us. And uh, therefore, deep reverence and respect and awe is due to you, even as we call you Father and relate to you as children. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to be more consistently of that mindset and that attitude toward you. Would you please make it more real, uh, more complete, uh, more of a pattern in our lives this week and in coming weeks and months ahead? Would you please make us people who are um, joyfully fearful uh, in a, in a uh, filial way of you, our triune God? And would you please, Lord, if there's anybody who is listening to me or listening to this sermon here uh, at a distance who is not a believer, would you please put your terrifying fear into his or her heart 
that they might flee in reverential fear and faith to Jesus and find forgiveness and love from you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.